Good morning. I hope you're all well. Uh, Jason sends his regards. He's preaching at Sunningdale this morning, so he has not disappeared. Um, and he will be preaching next week, Sunday, doing the next installment in um, our series, Journey Through the Bible. And um, just a few uh, things I just want to quickly mention. Um, we will be, uh, today's the last day to sign up for life groups. So if you'd like to get into a life group, especially a freedom group, if you can please put that down on your Connect card today and pop it into the anything box. Um, yeah, we're really wanting to, to get the group sorted out this afternoon. So if you can please do that before you leave. Um, and we'll be getting hold of everyone. If you put your name down before, we'll be getting hold of you as well. So just if you haven't yet, that there are freedom groups starting and normal life groups starting from next week. Okay, then also please remember that this message is on our, U, on, not our, on the version app under events, and you'll find it there under View Church Milneton. If you want to save, save that, then you've got the scriptures and that sort of thing. Okay. So <clears throat> the Bible is made up of 66 books, over 40 authors, and um, spans over several hundred years. It's divided into two halves, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And um, as you know, we've been doing a journey through the Bible from about a 30,000 foot view, as Jason likes to say, just trying to wetten, as Martine likes to say, your appetite, okay, because we want you to get into the Word. So we've just finished the 39 books of the Old Testament, and today, can you believe we got to 39 books of the Old Testament, and today we're starting the New Testament, but what I want you to do is I want you to think about, um, I want you to think about the Bible in this way, the part before Jesus and the part after Jesus, okay? Um, we've just finished the before Jesus part, and so now we're going to start the after Jesus part, which is 27 books of the New Testament, um, and we're going to begin with the first four books um, that are all about Jesus' life and his teaching. And these are four biographical accounts known as the Gospels. All right. So um, I'm going to hopefully uh, give you some more information maybe than you've known before and whetten your appetite to read the, the Gospels. All right. Martin's never going to live that one down. That's going to go down in history to whetten your appetite. Um, but the thing is, when we actually look at the facts about Jesus' life, before he started his ministry, um, it was a life that never actually seemed destined for greatness. If you think about it, Jesus was born in a small, obscure village. He was the child of a peasant woman. He didn't go to school or college. He never visited a large city. In fact, he never traveled more than 350 kilometers from where he was born. Okay? He never wrote a book. He never held an office, and he was 33 years old when public opinion turned against him, even prompting his closest friends to abandon him. He was then turned over to his enemies, nailed to a wooden cross between two criminals, and while he was dying, his executioners gambled for his clothing, the only possessions that he owned on earth. After he died, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of an acquaintance. Doesn't sound like a life destined for greatness. Yet today, he is arguably the central, most important figure of the entire human race. So from that, 
to the most important figure of the human race. His life even marks our concept of time. We are currently in year 2019 AD, Latin for Anno Domini, which means the year of our Lord. So from an insignificant, what seemed like an insignificant life, we live our lives according to Jesus, okay? And everything before him was BC, meaning before Christ. So from this insignificant character, he has changed the entire human race. But even though he's changed our time and our years according to who he is, he's changed the human race, do we really know who he is? Really? From his birth to his temptation, from his um, ministry to his message, to his mission, to his miracles, to his death, um, we probably actually don't know as much as we think we know. And what we think we know is often tainted by custom, tradition, um, conventional wisdom, and very often political correctness. Okay? What we think we know is often things we've been told that are not even recorded in the Bible. How many times have you actually found um, something that you've your entire life have thought is a verse from the Bible to only find out is not actually in the Bible? We think we know things about Jesus, but do we really know him? So while there are obviously some mistaken beliefs about Jesus floating around and some are based on tradition, as I mentioned, and some are based on ignorance, because obviously we cannot know everything, all right? Um, We do have four independent eyewitness accounts recorded in the Bible that clear things up for us. And that's why we need to get into the Bible. The four gospels in in no way contradict each other. They simply tell us facts about the world's most incredible person from four different perspectives. That's all they do. All right. So before we get into the rest of the message, let me pray. Father, I just want to commit this morning to you. I want to commit the message to you and pray that what I share this morning will be something that will help us to um, not only know more about who your son is, Jesus, but will actually encourage us and excite us to get into your word. So I pray this morning that you would use me um, to, to share this amazing story of your son, Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So my first question this morning is, what is a gospel? We talk about the gospels. What is a gospel? So the word gospel itself is an old Saxon word, which just means God's spell, which, which is God's spell and means the good news. So that's very simple, okay? It just means the good news. And that is what lies at the heart of the person and the work of Jesus. The heart of that good news is that through Jesus, we can experience forgiveness of our sins and enter into an authentic, life-giving, personal, dynamic relationship with God. They are for the four gospels, as I mentioned, and they are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I don't know about you, but there was a time in my life where I assumed that I knew who those four people were and what their stories were. And I'm hoping today that I'm going to be able to expand your mind as to these four authors of the Gospels. Now, the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are very similar and contain a lot of common material. So we refer to those three Gospels as the synoptic Gospels, which basically just means similar in context, context, 
content, um, order, and statement, okay? And um, so they're all for the Gospels, but those are the synoptic Gospels because they're similar. And then um, John is um, slightly different. And then the question that we can ask ourselves is, why are there four Gospels, okay? Why was one not good enough? Why are there four? So think about it. It's one story, but from four perspectives, Okay, so when you have various people with different personalities and from different socioeconomic backgrounds giving testimony to an event, it gives a lot more credibility to that event when it comes from more than just one person's perspective, especially if the perspective lines up. Okay, so that's much better um, for that event than if it was just from one person. For example, in a courtroom with lawyers and a judge, all right, if... um, if a testimony, if testimonies from two or more people are being shared and they are identical, okay, like to the word identical, the, the judge will most likely accuse the speakers of being in cahoots with each other to line up their testimony, to make sure they're on the same page, okay? And what will happen is he'll throw that case out of court, all right, throw it right out. Because a strong case is only established when two or more clearly independent witnesses swear to the truth of their separate, non-contradictory, but corresponding statements. And that's why the four Gospels are so important. So just briefly, Matthew, he's concerned with Jesus' teaching and his Jewish background. Mark presents Jesus as the servant God. Luke concentrates on the human side of Jesus, and John gives us a picture of the divine Jesus, okay? Together, these four writers present a fuller picture of who Jesus is than any single writer could. Because, we, because as one person, you can only give one statement from one personality type, from one socioeconomic background. And that's why the four Gospels are so great, because they're from four completely different people, And the thing is, is that all four um, actually spend most of the time in their books. Um, Actually, they spend most of it on the last week of Jesus' life, okay? Because the last week of his life was his death, his burial, his resurrection, and then ascension. Um, Because that's obviously the most important part is that was Jesus' mission on earth. So that's all four gospels spend most of the time on that part. Then the next question, what do the gospels tell us? Okay, what do they actually tell us? They tell us about Jesus, his birth, his childhood, his baptism, his ministry, his arrest, his crucifixion, and his resurrection and ascension. So that's, they tell us everything about Jesus. And Jesus Christ is the foundation of our faith. That's why I said to you earlier on, think about the Bible as the before Jesus part and the after Jesus part. And that's why I also asked Sam if we could sing Cornerstone again this morning, because to me that song just sums up Jesus being the foundation of our faith, the cornerstone of our faith. In 1 Corinthians 3 verse 11, it says, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. As Christians, surely the one thing we want to know most is what did Jesus say? And what did Jesus do? That's what we should want to know. And these gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they tell us that. And just a side note for those of you that maybe, you don't have to admit it, but in case you're wondering, what is that red writing in the Bible? 
The red writing is what Jesus said. So when you see red writing, that's the words of Jesus. And the only reason I'm mentioning that is because I actually had a conversation with a person who's been a Christian for many, many years and they didn't know. I just assumed, because we assume things, we don't share it with you in church and wonder why you never knew. Okay, so in case you ever wondered, it's a bit of extra information for free. Okay, Um, so as we know, the Jews waited for a long time for this uh, promised leader, this promised savior, this promised king um, that, that, that had been foretold from the prophets years before. This was promised to the Jews that he was gonna come and he was gonna rescue them from the Roman oppressors. He was going to establish a new kingdom. He was gonna become their king. He was gonna rule the world with justice. This is what the Jews um, believed and were hoping for and was, was prophesied. So this is what they were looking out for. But do you know that many, but that most Jews actually overlooked prophecies that also spoke of the suffering servant who was going to be rejected and killed? And don't we often do that? We often look at the Bible and take what we want and don't read the rest because that's not what we want to hear, you know? And I think that they did that. They overlooked the point that Jesus was actually going to be Um, a suffering servant. It says in Isaiah 53 verse three, he was despised and rejected. A man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. And that's why it's so important for us to read our Bible so that we don't become disillusioned with God when he doesn't quite fit the picture that we want. If we read everything, not In a year or two years, we're not all capable of doing that. But if we get to know our Bible, then at least we can um, have a full, accurate picture of who God is and what He says and what He's promised. And maybe we even realize that some of the things we've believed are not even in the Bible. So what I want to do now is I actually want to briefly touch on the four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and just give you um, some idea of who the authors were, um, what their, their main theme of the, of the book was, and hopefully you'll leave here this morning um, excited to go and read some more about the Gospels. Okay, so the first one we're going to look at is Matthew. Now, Matthew was a Jewish man. He was a tax collector, so he wouldn't have been very well liked. He wouldn't have been very popular um, because he would have been collecting taxes for the Romans. Um, but He was um, one of the 12 disciples that Jesus called to to be with him in the beginning of his ministry. So Matthew was there with Jesus from the beginning. And Matthew actually wrote this book of Matthew to a Jewish audience. Okay? So So Matthew wrote to a Jewish audience. So that is why it's important that we know that because when you read it, you'll understand why he's put a lot of the things in that he has. Um, Matthew wanted to prove to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah and he was the one that they were waiting for and he wanted to explain God's kingdom to them. And um, Matthew is the first of the synoptic gospels and basically links the Old and New Testaments, which is important because he actually uh, has a lot of references to Old Testament prophecies. So um, it's it's really a great book where a lot of those prophecies are mentioned. Your wife's sitting at the back. (laughs) Sorry, I couldn't help it. (laughs) Okay. 
church. I'm going to get very distracted in this message. Hopefully everyone else is sitting next to their spouse. Okay. (laughs) I saw you looking around. That's why I thought I would tell you. (laughs) Okay. Um, A key verse from Matthew is Matthew 5.17, which says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law. This is Jesus speaking. It's in red in the Bible. And it says, um, I've not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Okay, so that's like a key verse of Matthew. He hasn't come to change the laws or to change the prophecies. He's come to fulfill them. And Matthew opens his gospel with a genealogy to prove that Jesus is a descendant of King David and Abraham, just as the Old Testament had predicted. Okay, so Matthew being Jewish, speaking to a Jewish audience, knew this would be important. Okay, Jesus' birth didn't go unnoticed. Both the shepherds and wise men came to worship him. The Jewish people were waiting for this Messiah to appear. However, after Jesus is born, the Jews don't recognize him as their Messiah because they were looking for a different kind of king. They were ignoring some of the very obvious Old Testament prophecies. When we look at the first 17 verses of Matthew, we meet 46 people whose lifetime span 2,000 years. Now, all of these people that he mentions um, are ancestors or were ancestors of Jesus, and they vary considerably in personality, spirituality, and experience, okay? And this is actually very encouraging for me to realize that even the descendants of Jesus were all very different. They were not all great people. They were not all amazing. they made up of, um, some were like heroes of faith, like Abraham, um, Isaac, Ruth, and King David. Um, some had very shady reputations, like Tamar and Rahab, okay? Um, many were very ordinary, people that you probably wouldn't even know or heard of before, like Hezron, Ram, Nashon, and Akim, and others were evil, like Manasseh and Abijah. They were evil, but they were all part of the descendants of Jesus. God's work in history is not limited by human failures or sins. It's not limited. And he works through ordinary people to bring his son into the world. And I want to encourage you this morning. If you think, you know what, Susan, I I have such a, a, a bad past. Yesterday I did this, this, and this. I'll never be able to be used by God. God is saying that all these people were part of Jesus' descendants, of his ancestors. How can we say we're not good enough to do what Jesus has asked us to do? How can we say that we'll never amount to anything in God's kingdom when evil people like Manasseh were part of his genealogy, that they were actually um, all part because God does. God is not limited or restricted by our human failures or sins. He uses us if we are willing, if we are open, if we are willing to change the things that God reveals to us that we need to change. He uses all of us. If we think we need to be so perfect and so right, we will never be used. Okay, so God wants to use you. He really, really does. These gospel accounts that are going to come up are 
found only in Matthew, all right? Um, and I'm going to tell you why this is important in a moment. But if you just look at the list, Joseph's dream is the only one mentioned in Matthew. The visit of the wise men, the escape to Egypt, the slaughter of the children by Herod, the death of Judas, the dream of Pilate's wife, the other resurrections, the bribery, the baptism emphasis on the Great Commission. So these special events are recorded by Matthew only and are not mentioned in any of the other Gospels. And it's likely that he did this because he was communicating the gospel to a Jewish audience. And five of these cases that are, um, I've, I've put a yellow asterisk next to them, are actually fulfillments of Old Testament prophecies. And that's why it would have been important to Matthew to put them into this book, because his audience was, was, was Jewish. So it would have been important for him to mention this. And the other ones that don't have an asterisk are mentioned because they would have been of particular interest to the Jews of Matthew's day. And so it's interesting when you realize how each author wrote their book. They would have known that, th- that this would have mattered to a Jew. Are these Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled? Yes, they were. In Matthew three sixteen to 17, we see um, Jesus' baptism, all right? That he, he um, comes out of the water, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. And a voice from heaven says, this is my dearly loved Son who brings me great joy. So in that passage, we see the three persons of the Trinity, okay? Where Matthew is actually telling the Jews that Jesus is God. He's actually pointing it out to them that um, He says that God the Father speaks. If you look at the baptism, God spoke. Uh, God the Son got baptized and God the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. So it's one God, but three persons. And you know, this is one of those mysteries of God that I think will always be difficult for our human understanding to comprehend, okay? But Matthew wanted them to know that he was from God and and was God. And you know, Jesus... um, Jesus wasn't tempted when things were going well. He wasn't tempted in the temple. He wasn't tempted when he was being baptized. He wasn't tempted when he was healing people. He was tempted in the wilderness, when he was alone, when he was hungry, when he was probably maybe even fearful at some times, you know, when he, felt, when he had nobody else around him. That's when he was tempted. And the reason I want to bring that point to you is because I think so often um, that is when we are tempted when we are going through a difficult time in life, when we are lonely, when we are um, not feeling well, when we are being physically challenged with, with illness perhaps, or maybe we're trying to make a big life decision, when we are vulnerable is when we are tempted. Do you know when else we are tempted? With things that can cause pride in us. And so Jesus wasn't tempted when things were going well. So don't think for a moment that when you're standing in, in, in church with your hands raised and worshiping, you know, I don't know about you, but that's often when I feel the best. And I feel like I can do anything. Nothing is, tomorrow, I'm, I'm not gonna give in to eating chocolates. I'm not gonna lose my temper in the traffic. I'm not gonna do any of these things because it's so amazing. And then we walk out of here and what do we do? Maybe we find ourselves in a vulnerable place and that's when we're tempted. And so Jesus had 12 disciples, 12 friends, people he spent time with, don't do life alone. That's when you're most vulnerable. And then the final chapter of Matthew is where he talks about the Great Commission. 
And as a Christian, this is very important for us. He says in Matthew 28 from verse 19, Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Isn't that encouraging? That as we go out and we love on people and we walk with people and we journey with people, Jesus has promised that he is with us until the end of the age. And this is the mission of all Christians. It's for us to be faithful to Jesus by sharing the good news, by walking with others, by teaching his lessons, by obeying his commands. Then we go on to the Gospel of Mark. Now, Mark was a young Jewish man, and he was probably very young when Jesus started his ministry. Mark was not one of the 12 disciples, okay? Mark actually joined the Apostle Paul um, on his very first missionary journey. So he wasn't one of the 12 disciples, but he was a very good friend of Paul's. And it's actually believed that, um, that, Mo- that Mark uh, was very good friends with Peter, who was one of Jesus' disciples, and he was Peter's scribe, and that the book of Mark is actually um, recordings from the perspective of Peter. Okay, so just to give you some background, um, that Mark wasn't a disciple as people often um, think that that he was. And Mark wrote the book for the Christians in Rome. So he wasn't basing his writings on a Jewish audience. He was actually basing his writings to a Roman audience who who were Christians. And um, the thing is, is that um, Romans worshipped many gods. So um, Mark wanted his readers to know that Jesus was the one and only uh, true son of God. And he went to great lengths to explain Jewish traditions Um, which would have not been necessary if he was writing the book to a Jewish audience. So he actually needed the Romans to understand some of the Jewish traditions, and that's why he went to great lengths. And of the four Gospels, Mark's is actually the most chronological. Most of the stories are told in the order that they happened, and um, his book is very action-packed. So if you like action... Okay, if you're a Marvel fan, then start with Mark because it's, uh, it's, in Mark it's suddenly and, you know, it's, 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 it's very action-packed. And he actually contains most of the events that happened in Galilee where Jesus started his ministry. Um, in the first half, Mark focuses on who Jesus is. So he asks the question, who is the Messiah? All right, the first half of the book. In the second half, he focuses on how Jesus became the Messiah. In the middle of the book is a pivotal story that brings the two halves together where Jesus answers both of these questions, the who and the how. Okay, we'll get back to that in a moment. So why does the gospel of Mark, if you read from the beginning, you'll see it actually starts with the story of John the Baptist. Okay, Um, it doesn't mention the story of Jesus's birth. So, and the reason for this is because the audience were, were Romans, in those days it was customary if a very important Roman official was going to be visiting a town, a herald would go before him to announce that this important official was going to be coming into this town, okay? So that's what Romans were used to. If you're important, someone's going to announce your arrival, And that's why Mark started with the story of John the Baptist, because John the Baptist basically heralded in Jesus' coming, 
okay? So Mark knew that that would have been more important to the Romans than Jesus' birth because they would have understood that that means someone important is coming. We actually see in the first half of Mark 1, it says, this is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. It began just as the prophet Isaiah had written. Look, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you and he will prepare your way. So there Mark is is stating that, that John the Baptist was the messenger that was gonna prepare the way. And then Jesus gets baptized and John is presenting who Jesus is, the Messiah. So the first half, who is Jesus? He's the Messiah. Then we come to the middle part, okay, that brings it all together. Jesus brings his disciples together and he asks them this question, who do you think I am? And Peter, who loved to jump ahead and and have all the answers, he says, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Because that's what everyone was saying. That's what everyone was thinking. But then something different happens and Jesus starts to explain to them, how he's going to become the Messiah, which we all know was through death, okay? And this is not what they expected to hear. So Jesus says he's going to suffer and die, and then he's going to rule by becoming a servant. And you can imagine to a Jew, it's like, what? But that doesn't make sense. What do you mean you're going to suffer and die? We've just started this ministry, Jesus, come on. Like, you know, and Peter rebukes him. So in this middle part of of Mark, Peter rebukes him and says, and tells Jesus to stop talking that nonsense. You're not going to die. And what is Jesus' response to Peter? He actually says, get behind me, Satan. Because he needs the disciples to hear what he's saying. He needs the disciples to understand who he is and how he's going to become the Messiah. So then the second half of the book, Mark starts to explain how. It's the last week of Jesus' life. He goes to Jerusalem. He gets into conflict with the religious leaders. He gets arrested. He's put um, on trial as someone claiming to be king of the Jews. He's given a crown and a purple robe as kings were given, but it's all a cruel joke, okay? Um, Because this is not what the Jews were expecting. So... Jesus wanted his disciples to know who he was and how it was going to happen, but they were not seeing it. They were not getting it. And it's at this point of of Mark that we meet a Roman soldier who is obviously there. He's he's, he's, he's part of the men who's been beating Jesus, nailing him to the cross, um, watching him suffer and die on the cross. And this Roman soldier suddenly seems to get it. And he says, surely this is the son of God. It's crazy that it's one of the enemy who actually seems to get it, okay? That this crucified Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior. And that's the structure of Mark. The book um, doesn't end there, but it ends very abruptly. So we see on the third day, women go to the the tomb. The tomb is empty. The angels tell them to go and tell everybody that Jesus is alive. And they run away fearful and the book ends. And so obviously, um, for a lot of people, that was like, oh, you can't just end the book like that. You know, have you ever watched a movie or read a novel where it just ends and you make up your own ending that would have been better? 
I think that's what a lot of scribes did. So if you go to the end of, of the book of Mark, you'll actually see that there is an ending that was placed later. And there's a footnote that actually says that that ending was placed later to give the book closure. But did ever, anyone ever think that maybe Mark wanted to end the book that way? Maybe he wanted to end it abruptly. So Mark is a brilliant storyteller, and he knew that people were confused by what Jesus, um, you know, had said, how it had all worked out. This wasn't making sense. He knew it was startling to people. They were obviously um, wrestling with this. They were confused. And so I think that maybe Mark wanted to end the book um, by asking the question, Is this crucified Jesus really the Messiah they've been waiting for? You see, because God didn't make us puppets. He made us thinkers. He made us to question. He made us to search. He made us to study. So maybe Mark is saying, you know, I'm not going to spoon feed you. Ask yourself the question. Is this the Messiah? And uh, a key verse for Mark is Mark 10 verse 45 that says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Then we go on to the book of Luke. Now, Luke uh, was a Greek doctor, a historian, and a very good friend and traveling partner of the Apostle Paul. So Luke was not one of the disciples. He was Greek, and um, he's actually one of the only Gentile authors in the New Testament. Um, And he uh, targeted his book mainly to Gentile Christians. And he wrote the book of Luke and Acts, which you can actually read together. They actually go together, all right? Um, And he starts by telling us how and why he wrote the book. You see, Luke um, wanted to go back to all the eyewitness accounts of everyone that he knew that had been there, who had seen what Jesus had done. He he got uh, testimonies from all these people and put them together. Um, because he wanted to produce something that he referred to as an orderly account about the things that had been fulfilled among us. In Luke 1, he starts off by saying, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Luke wanted to explain what had been fulfilled. So that word fulfilled shows us why Luke wrote this book. Okay, For him, the story of Jesus is not just ancient history, He wants to show how it's the fulfillment of the covenant story between God and the Israelites. And even bigger than that, he wants to show how it's a story between God and the whole world. Okay, because um, Jesus didn't only come for the Jews, he came for everybody. So Luke is also the most comprehensive gospel. And if you look at the vocabulary and the wording, the way Luke has written the book, you also realize that um, it was obviously written by a very well-educated person, all right? Um, He makes frequent references to illnesses and diagnosis. He talks about um, things in in ways that show um, that he's educated. But the thing is, is that most of chapters 9 to 18 are not found in any other gospel, So that's why it's so good to read all the Gospels, because you pick up things that are not in some of the others. And from verse 9 to 18, you won't find that in any of the other um, Gospels. So Luke affirms Jesus' holiness, okay? He affirms that he says, he affirms that he is the Son of God, but his emphasis in the book of Luke is actually to affirm his humanity, 
that he is the son of man, okay? He came to earth, okay, he's God, but he became a man so he could relate to what us as men and women feel, what we experience, temptation, um, pain, all sorts of things, okay? Um, Luke being a doctor, um, he obviously was, was very aware of science and the order of science. And um, also being a Greek, he would have been a man of detail. So it's no surprise that he begins his book by telling us that, he, that he's reporting the facts. Okay, so not just he's reporting stories, he's actually reporting the facts. He would have gone to great lengths um, to get his stories together. But also what's amazing about Luke is that he was around with the birth um, of the early church and the growth of the early church. So when you read Acts, you actually see what the church was like, and it's really amazing. Um, from Luke 4, verse 18, um, this, is a, um, th- this is a quote that Jesus said when he first started his ministry. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. Luke is making the point that Jesus cared about social justice. So as a church, we need to care about social justice. We need to care about the things that Jesus cared about. A key verse for Luke, Luke 19, verse 9, Jesus says to him, said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. The son of man. Then we get into the last book. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the synoptic gospels, which means that they are similar. And John is not placed in the synoptic gospels because John was a different kettle of fish. Okay, He was, he was more, he expressed himself in, in almost like, Poetry, he, he focused on slightly different things in his book. Um, and uh, John was also there from the beginning, okay? John was one of Jesus' disciples, and he was also the longest living disciple. And he often referred to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved the most, okay? So if ever you're feeling really good about yourself, you can refer to yourself as the, the Christian that Jesus loves the most, because it seemed to that John got away with it, so you can too, All right, John also wrote 1, 2, and 3 John and the book of Revelation. So he really um, gave a lot into the New Testament. And his main audience were um, new Christians and uh, non-believing, searching people. So so people that were not Christians that were searching. All right, Um, then over 90% of John's gospel is unique to his book only. 90% of his book. So um, he doesn't focus on the life of Christ. He actually focuses on um, that Jesus was and is the very heaven-sent Son of God. So he uses words that are, you know, more like divine and and that sort of thing. And um, he reveals Jesus' identity in his very first words in the opening statement of his book. He says, in the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God and the word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. I love that. It's one of my favorite books of the Bible. I love the way he he expresses who Jesus was and is. And um, John organized his gospel around seven signs, which he chose to to keep as uh, almost like evidence 
of who Jesus uh, was. And you can have a look at the seven signs. It'll be up there. You can take a photograph if you want to. But these signs, um, John sees these as events, um, sees these events not just as miracles. He actually sees them as um, things where, as, as a, sorry, he sees them as miracles and as something that, that, that Jesus did where we can ask the question, who is this man that can do all these things? So John found it really necessary to um, focus on these seven signs, um, changing water into wine, healing the royal official son, healing the paralyzed man, feeding the 5,000, walking on water, healing the man born blind, raising Lazarus from the dead. Because the thing is, he wants you to ask, who is this man? How can he be the master over quality, changing water to, uh, to wine, over distance, over time, over quantity, natural laws, misfortune and death? How can he be the master over those things? Um, John believed that these signs were evidence that Jesus was the son of God the Messiah. And a key verse from John is John 20, verse 30 to 31. The disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. <clears throat> and so in conclusion... I want you to ask yourself the question, so what can I learn from the Gospels? Why is it necessary for me to read the Gospels? It's because Jesus came to earth to save us. And we need to know who this Jesus is, what he said, what he did. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot do enough good works to extinguish the sinful nature inside of us. Only Jesus can do that. By us accepting Him as the Messiah, accepting Him as the Savior into our lives, accepting that He is the one who died for us and choosing to have a relationship with Him. That is how our sins are forgiven. But you know what's so amazing is that Christianity doesn't say to you, close your eyes and just believe. It doesn't say that. What does Christianity say? It says, check it out for yourself. Check it out. Read the Word. Ask questions. Study the Scriptures. Pray. Ask God to guide you. Ask Him, you know, check it out for yourself. Because your conclusion about Jesus is a life and death matter. Once you have decided that you're going to study the Word, that you're going to take um, what we have been trying to do here by giving you um, something to whet your appetite, to go back and to read the, the Word so that you can investigate, so that you can study the Scriptures day after day. In Acts 17 from verse 11, it says, And the people of Berea were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica. And they listened eagerly to Paul's message. They searched the scriptures day after day to see if Paul and Silas were teaching the truth. As a result, many Jews believed, as did many of the prominent Greek women and men. 
Don't just take my word for it. Don't just take Jason, Moffat, Martine's word. Study for yourself. Hopefully we are putting something in your hands that say, yes, I want to find out more about those authors, about what they said about Jesus, about what Jesus said. And hopefully you will know more about this Jesus who loves you, who wants a relationship with you. Can I ask you to close your eyes?